0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 17 of Inside COVID-19. Coming up, some practical advice on why it is a really good idea to eat properly during lockdown. Capitec's chief executive on how his business is transforming for the new world of work and highlights from Monday night's lengthy health ministry update where evidence was provided to explain why South Africa seems to be doing so well in its war against COVID-19. Inside COVID-19, from News. First, in the COVID-19 headlines today, will total deaths worldwide from the virus pushed above 122,000 Tuesday, with confirmed global infections now at 2 million. South Africa's confirmed infections rose to 2,415, a daily increase of 6%, but it's also reflective of the rise from 73,000 to 87,000 tests. There are now 27 dead South Africans from the COVID-19 virus. The testing is about to be dramatically stepped up, with Business for South Africa announcing on Tuesday that around 25,000 tests a day will be conducted over the next two weeks, helping inform the authorities on what the next lockdown step should be. The organization also said that personal protection equipment worth 1.6 billion rand, mostly from China, will arrive in South Africa over the next fortnight. The masks... Gloves and other equipment is being funded by the Solidarity Fund, the Motzepi Foundation, Naspers and RMB's Spire Fund. It was a day of media briefings Tuesday with updates on South Africa's response to COVID-19. But A business for South Africa, as mentioned earlier, provided a sobering scenario though of an economy which could contract, it says, by 10% this year with 1 million people added to unemployment lines. We'll have some highlights on that for you tomorrow. The organization also called on all businesses to pay SME creditors in full by next Monday, the 20th of April. In its announcement today, the South African Reserve Bank provided a slightly better projection, with its best guess of economic growth suggesting a 6.8% contraction this year, and that helped inform the decision to cut interest rates by 100 basis points. A move rapidly followed on the lending rates charged by banks. The International Monetary Fund forecast that as a result of COVID-19, global economic activity will contract by 3% this year, and South Africa's by 5.8%, and that's in line with an expected 7.5% fall in Euroland, 6.5% in the UK, and 5.9% contraction in the US. At the massively disrupted Treasury media conference, Finance Minister Tito Mboweni said the country is now holding regular discussions on financial support with multilateral institutions and would be starting off with a $60 million loan from the IMF's COVID-19 relief program. Now, we've had some really interesting interviews in our COVID-19 podcasts. And here's one that I think is going to appeal to many people. Dr. Megan Schultz is from the Eastern Cape, from Graaff Reinet and Utenhague. I'm not sure you went to school at Graaff Reinet and uh, grew up in Utenhague?
1: Actually, I was just born in Graaff Reinet. I moved over to Utenhague when I was about three, so I grew up in Utenhague, went to school there, uh, studied in Cape Town, and I live in PE now.
0: Okay, and but you're from you're an Eastern Cape person apart from the studying in Cape yes. Town part. And what yes. I found fascinating about your story is that you went into the townships to get some pretty unique insights. And this is interesting. South African scientists or medics, if you like, as well, get exposed to very different things because of our socioeconomic breakdown in the country. But you made some very interesting observations while you were you were serving in the township. Just take us through that story and what it led you to.
1: Okay, so... It started at Utenegh Provincial Hospital. I was doing my community service there. That's after your internship. And I was seeing patients in the hospital as well as at some of the clinics in Utenegh. And we started testing vitamin B12 in patients where we suspected there was something slightly off, that we weren't quite getting a a grip on. Uh, And we started noticing B12 deficiencies in very unexpected patients. And uh, So usually what we're taught at medical school uh, tends to be elderly patients, those with poor nutrition, vegetarian or vegan patients, etc. You can imagine what I mean. And I was now seeing these in young, fit patients, um, seemingly not with a typical symptoms that we would normally see of vitamin B12 deficiency.
0: What is vitamin B12 for people who aren't scientists?
1: Uh, So vitamin B12, also known as cobalamin, um, is one of the essential vitamins that we need. Um, It essentially helps to build various amino acids in the body, specifically it helps with myelin. So myelin is something that coats your nerves. So it forms a sheath around the nerves. Uh, So if you can imagine like an electrical wire... We put coating around it so that the electricity can conduct more easily. With our nervous system, the myelin actually coats our nerves so that the messages can conduct quickly. Do you think you can move your toe without really thinking about it? And that's because of myelin sheaths that cover the nerves and send that impulse down very quickly from your brain to your toe.
0: As you're now saying, it, it became quite an important part of your observations.
1: Yes. Um so normally we taught that if you have a deficiency, you often get um, dementia um, and there are studies linking it towards depression. But we were seeing it in patients that had psychosis, um, anxiety, so the full range of symptoms, not just the typical patients and in much younger patients. B12, as we are taught, it is found in animal products so meat, fish, eggs, milk, etc. Um, And our bodies cannot produce it ourselves. So we need to take it in from our dietary sources. Um, So typically, a a person eating a full diet that doesn't have any other illnesses shouldn't have a low vitamin B12.
0: But you discovered that many of the patients who had mental uh, illnesses had this deficiency.
1: Yes, I did. Um, and that's sort of where my study is going. So my study is still very much the first step of what needs to be a multi stage study, and we we're going to collect some data and then just sit and compare and see if there is any clinical correlation with our patients. The problem is we're not sure is the b12 deficiency causing the mental illness or is the mental illness causing the person not to eat well enough, or is this just a global thing or you know in our region? that most people are deficient, and it just so happens that I'm only seeing the ones with mental illness. So in the future, we'd have to compare the data I get from data from other departments and other wards as well to see if it compares to the other patients.
0: Megan, but bringing it to COVID-19 and the need now for proper nutrition, from what you've said, you might not get mentally ill, but you might well get depressed or, or something along those lines. It's
1: difficult to comment just on B12 during covid So theoretically, your B12 stores in your body should last months to years, depending on your level. If we look at someone who has a normal level going into lockdown, you should presumably come out of lockdown still okay, even if you didn't eat any B12 containing products in that time. But if you've got someone who's already on a borderline level and now doesn't have the money to buy the meat, eggs, fresh produce, things like that, this might well push them into a full-blown B12 deficiency. And obviously, if they already have a deficiency, it can aggravate it.
0: And from a broader perspective, nutrition itself, does it not suggest that there's some relationship between poor nutrition and actually just not feeling so good?
1: Definitely. I don't think it's something we think about often. But if you just think about how integral nutrition is in our lives and lifestyles, Food is part of our routine. I was listening to the podcast you had yesterday about exercise and our meals and what we eat are so ingrained in our lifestyle that that alone is going to be disturbing us. Food has a lot to do with our self-image. We do have a lot of patients with eating disorders. Now you're going to be even more restricted in what food is actually available, availability of your Fresh food, a lot of people only going shopping once a week, once every two weeks, so they're living on canned goods. Costs, we have seen, despite the fact that shops are not allowed to skyrocket the costs, there are definitely increasing costs, especially of meat. And then also when you have drug addiction, alcohol addiction, if you can find that through an illegal source, you're rather going to use your money on those than on proper food.
0: So what about some ideas on how we can help ourselves through better nutrition during this time?
1: So generally, when I discuss with my patients, I try to use the national and international guidelines, um, which generally fall along the food pyramids or the food plates. I quite enjoy the Canadian food plate, um, and that's essentially a visual representation of what your, your daily intake should be like. Um, and they essentially divide up a plate, showing you how much should be fresh green veg- or your veggies, how much should be starches, how much healthy fats, etc., I find that very useful um, when I am counselling my patients. Obviously, the patients I see um, are not from the same socioeconomic class as what your listeners are. So they often don't have the money for a lot of the things we talk about. But I think that's always a very good first step to go and look at what the healthy recommendations are and to compare to what the South African plate really looks like. An average serving in many of our restaurants is double or triple what we really need to be eating. And then also to... To put some consistency in what we're doing, um, sitting at home with a fully stocked fridge and and cupboard um, is not going to be helpful at this time if food is maybe your comfort at this point. So same as with the exercise, same as getting up in the morning, getting dressed, to try and keep some somewhat routine, to remember what my body needs to sustain it. And then also to forgive yourself at times as well. This isn't the time that you need to be worrying about. Your figure as much as surviving this, giving yourself a little bit of a break um, and being kind to yourself, and reaching out when you realize that you cannot actually cope. So nutrition on its own isn't going to prevent or cause anything specific, but it needs to be seen as part of the full picture and not be forgotten.
0: Megan, just to close off with, and, and again on the mental health issue, you get people who are... Addicted to, to tobacco to nicotine. They're not yes. allowed to buy cigarettes anymore. You get people who are addicted to alcohol uh, Or they might need to yes. not, not even know it, but you're not allowed about alcohol anymore Have you got any suggestions apart from just stop drinking and stop smoking?
1: It is something that's very difficult um, there have been a few statements that came out but nothing that the Department of Health has responded to yet As psychiatrists, we have been concerned because alcohol withdrawal can be deadly. Um, And we've seen people now looting shops to try and get the stuff, sale of illegal cigarettes, etc. I think it would be important to be aware if you are having any signs of alcohol withdrawal, um, like shaking, um, shakiness, um, your blood pressure can rise, your pulse gets very high, you can become sweaty. Some people can even have seizures. Um, that you not ignore these sort of things, that you rather seek help and that we can help detox you medically. Nicotine withdrawal in its own, though not very comfortable, isn't as deadly as alcohol withdrawal. And this might be a very good time to stop smoking and then use this as your motivation. There are nicotine replacements widely available from over-the-counter preparations to prescribed preparations that you can use but then not to forget that psychotherapy is also very useful in both of these addictions and although the rehab centers might not be open a lot of psychologists are now offering psychotherapy via the telephone or zoom or whatsapp video call etc so now might be the time while you have extra time to actually consider psychotherapy
0: (laughs) I caught up earlier today with Capitec's chief executive, Geri Fauri, whose business released its financial results for the year to end February. The full interview is on the Business News radio channel. But in this clip, we'll hear about the way that this innovative bank has implemented some radical transformation to stave off the impact of COVID-19.
2: If you look at all the different scenarios, all the different companies that's built, I don't think there's anyone that's built this scenario.
0: No, only <laughs> Bill Gates. He's the only one.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so it's interesting to see how you react
0: and what you do. Conference call. I seem to be spending my life on these. I'm sure you are as well that I was on this morning was Business for South Africa, where they said that 60% of SMEs have already started retrenching. These are the guys who employ the bulk of the people in the economy. Presumably, they'd be employing the bulk of your clients as well maybe we need to look at this in two ways starting off from the impact on your clients with retrenchments and then secondly mercantile bank is very heavily invested in entrepreneurs and uh, and and in the SMEs as well so you got a you got a double uh, two balls in the air there how are you handling them Yeah, I think,
2: you know, the survey that I've seen and heard is that 53% is considering. The big difference between considering and have started. So I think a lot of people are thinking about uh, retrenchment. We haven't seen any uptick in our retrenchment applications of our 1.2 million clients. So it's business as usual. So that's telling me that the retrenchment hasn't taken place yet. And I, I think that is You know, the the one million dollar question, you've got the lockdown and will it be lifted? And if it's lifted, in what what rules and regulations are going to be in play? And are we going to support um, the small business plan to survive? Uh, I've mentioned stats this morning. If they ask a thousand people, uh, business people, will your business survive in a three month period? 73% said over in three months lockdown, no. In one month lockdown, 27% said no. And, you know, that's the difficult thing. There's so much uncertainty you know, don't know because if you look at all the different cash flows and circumstances of all the different players in the market, you're very uncertain exactly what what's going to happen. But I think that's where it's important. Like I said, that's where the Reserve Bank, the banks, the gov- government is looking at ways to say, how can we support it? Because we need to get um, to support the, the businesses and make certain that they survive and that they employ people.
0: Well, maybe the business for South African numbers are, are updated. But what they also mentioned this morning is that they expect a million people to join the ranks of the unemployed. And again, that would be uh, many people doubtless uh, from your client base as well. Mm. Uh, mm. You mentioned earlier retrenchments. Do you have int- uh, retrenchment insurance and, and how long might that last? Yeah,
2: we've got uh, retrenchment insurance or liquidation insurance. If a company is liquidated or they're retrenching and you're covered for your full loan, Um, and that's part of what we've always given, um, so from that side, uh, we find, but you will definitely have an increase in your premiums because your insurance companies uh, needs to be compensated for that. So that will be having effect on themselves. Alec, that's the that's the uncertainty. You know, the Reserve Bank talks about 360,000 people that will be out of jobs. Other people talk a million. You know, it's like the GDP impact on the GDP. Some people say it's minus one. Reserve Bank this morning said minus six. There's people that says minus ten, minus twenty. I think that's where we need to have cool heads. Um, you need to look at the factors and manage every single opportunity in the short term to see how do you make certain that South Africa survives.
0: What about your employees? You've got 14,000 people who work for you. Are you considering, or uh, like those guys were saying, 73% saying if it's a three-month lockdown, what happens at Capitec?
2: No, we still fine. Um, you know, I said this morning that. of our branches are closed, um, and we're attacking the people are working on shift, uh, on, on a shift basis. So a person will, if he doesn't work on a particular branch, he will work on shift uh, to relieve the pressure. And currently we're still paying all our people when we don't see that changing. Um, so we're still positive that we can pay our suppliers, pay our rentals and pay our employees. Um, so that is a focus. And we 're all trying to maintain that
0: what 's foot traffic been like in the branches that are open?
2: No, the foot traffic has dropped tremendously because we 've only got fifty percent uh, open. Um, we have uh, cut our hours from traditionally we were open from eight till six and now we 're only operating nine to four but you know it 's for me again that positive thing uh, we um, about a week ago we said and challenged and said but how, how can we use our people in the branches? And we got a team together of seven, eight people, and they've created magic, converting our branches into call centers. Um, we've got now 38 branches by Thursday. That's a call center, and we should be up to 100 by the end of this week and hopefully all 800 by the next two to three weeks. And that what that does is that you can perform all the functions that you do in the, in the branch. You can perform, but you do it by, by telephone. Um, so you can still sell, you can still do everything you've done, but you just do it over the telephone. And that was in preparation if we've got a very long uh, uh, lockdown. So, yeah, uh, we've got a lot of plans um, to see how we can still continue using our people and making certain that for us the most important is deliver on the service needs of our clients.
0: You've got 852 branches, half of them are closed, 425 Mm call it, uh, 38 of those already are now have now become call centers. Do the others, the other almost 400 of them, also become call centers?
2: Yeah. The whole idea is that we can convert basically... We're starting to see now with the 40 that's on and the 100 this week, what volumes we can handle. Um, and if we can handle the volumes, and that's normally just tweaking on the IT side. If we can handle the volumes, we'll go up to all 850 branches. You know, the interesting thing is uh, our call center um, four weeks ago, I was in a meeting with the call centers and I challenged the people to say, can we work from home? Um, and the answer was no, we can't. And in a 10 in a day period, We've converted, we've rented two and a half thousand laptops, um, set it up with our own technology. And bar 37 people of the 1,200 people, all of them are working from home. And we've got the same throughput, same efficiencies, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, a clear indication if you think differently and you change your thinking that you can do things completely different. Uh, and I think that's going to be the interesting thing. Uh, Going forward, if you look at business in totality, um, the way we've done business in a traditional manner is going to change completely Um, with a lot of more flexibility, different values, different focus areas. And I think that's where businesses will have to focus on to make certain that they can deliver on those needs.
0: So is it likely that you might keep these call centers?
2: Yeah, um, you know, you've, you've still got 14 million clients that's looking for assistance. But the question is now, we've always struggled, for example, over peak periods to have enough staff. Now you can go into micro-jobbing. So you can say to a person, but we will pay you from, let's say, 1 o'clock in the afternoon till 5 o'clock in the afternoon to perform a certain function for us and handle a certain amount of calls. So you create much more flexibility in, in the marketplace. And that's what I call micro-jobbing. And if you look at our unemployment, it's a very nice opportunity to create work for people, but you don't employ them for a full month, but you employ them for peak periods or specific areas where you've got needs.
0: So, Harry, so far you haven't seen an impact on retrenchments or of the lockdown. We're, we're three weeks into it. We've got two more weeks to go. Are you anticipating? Are you modelling that some of your clients are going to be struggling in May if the lockdown continues, i.e., if they don't have an income?
2: Uh, for sure. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, we haven't seen an uptick in in retrenchments, but what we have seen is people that's looking for payment breaks or rescheduling. We we normally handling about two to three thousand calls per day. We're handling ten to twelve thousand calls per day. So uh, there's a tremendous need for clients. I need it, sort of um, and those volumes are coming through. So we're monitoring it. It's on the retrenchment side itself that we haven't seen uh, and the side that we haven't seen an uh, uptick. But there's for sure an uptick on people that's looking for for assistance and help over these difficult
0: times. And is the Reserve Bank able to help you so that you can help those clients?
2: Yeah, I think that's the, one of the good things that the Reserve Bank has, has done. They brought out a regulation whereby if you give a payment break, uh, it's not seen as distress. So you don 't need additional capital for that, um, so that is helping us quite a lot to be able to give those relief measurements because normally, if you've done it in normal circumstances, um, you would have had to hold extra capital for that so yeah i think that's that's where the reserve bank has done extremely well
0: but it sounds like it's being pretty well coordinated
2: yeah uh, I think that's the nice thing about um, you know bars are we getting together weekly uh, with the reserve bank we're getting together on a weekly basis. With uh, ter- Treasury, we're getting together on a weekly basis. So that's the one thing about South Africa. You know, when the chips are down, people are getting together and, and we're working together. Um, so I think from that side, it's positive. We're normally to get a regulation, getting, getting it out takes two to three, four months. In these circumstances, it was a day, day and a half, two days. So that shows it can be done.
0: On Monday night, South Africa's health ministry held a lengthy and detailed online presentation that thankfully missed the gremlins that infested the treasury event. My colleague Linda van Tilburg worked through the two hours of audio to compile the highlights for us, kicking off with the chair of the ministerial advisory group on COVID-19, Professor Salim Abdul Karim, explaining why South Africa seems to be bucking the global trend and why this Saturday, April the 18th, is a crucial date for the country. So this coming week is critical. We need to know what the average
3: number of cases is going to be. Why? Because we want to know what the community transmission levels are. Because we want to use that to guide us on what next steps we should follow and how we should manage the lockdown. So by the 18th of April, we will know if community transmission and whether our interpretation, that community transmission has been kept low, whether that's accurate. And if we look at the 67 cases per day on average, the 95% confidence interval is 45 to 89. In other words, the true number of cases is between 45 and 89 so we are 95% confidence that the, the, the number of cases per day, even though we're seeing 67, there's some variability, and that variability lies between 45 and 89. So using that as an objective criterion, now we have an objective way, based on the r naught. in other words, how many people is an infected person spreading it to? If we base it on that, then we have a set of criteria. If the average number of daily cases, and we have to exclude active screening, because that's that's not comparing apples and apples, but if we look at just the passive cases between the 10th and the 16th of April, and if we see 90 or more cases on average between the 10th and 16th of April, then we need to continue the lockdown. And the reason, put very simply, is that the average number of cases per day is going up so the R0 is going above 1 and we don't want that, we want to keep R0 at 1 or lower if we see number of cases between 45 and 89 then we are in the same region as 67 right within the margin of error and there we want to use our community prevalence what is the active case finding telling us and if that active case finding as a, as a screening to, uh, positivity to screening ratio that is above one in a thousand, then we continue the lockdown. If it's below one in a thousand, then we can ease the lockdown. Similarly, if the absolute number of cases is 44 or lower, we can ease the lockdown because it tells us r naught is less than one. So, you can see that using epidemiological criteria, we create a set of a clear approach as to how to deal with the lockdown. Now, you must expect that there will be large daily variations, because, you know, just the way the timing of the lab tests and so on, so you will see that, and you will see some large numbers, some small numbers. Don't let that bother you. You have to look at it over a period of time, and so that's why we look at a whole week at a time, and we compare weeks with weeks so that we're comparing apples with apples. We know that if we end the lockdown, and we end it abruptly, we may run the risk of undoing all of the effort and the benefit we've achieved. Because then we'll be putting high-risk and low-risk people together, traveling in the same buses, taxis, trains. We have to do something about that. We have to avoid that situation. And so we need to think about and plan for a systematic easing of the lockdown starting with transport hubs and then working our way down from the lowest
0: risk to the highest risk. Professor Karim also said the South African epidemic's trajectory was unique in that the curve appears to differ from other countries and the plateau at low levels is a genuine effect and not due to a lack of testing. So why
3: is South Africa not on the expected COVID epidemic trajectory. Next slide. I've chosen to compare South Africa with the UK, just because for the first two weeks or so, the number of new cases we had in South Africa was virtually the same as the number of cases that we saw in the UK. In other words, in the initial period, the new cases in each of our countries at that point after we reached 100 cases was very similar. Suddenly on the 26th of March, our line chooses not to continue the same upward trajectory that you see in the UK. That's not to say that our two countries are comparable, but certainly the initial trajectory of these two epidemics was similar. So what happened on the 26th of March was that we saw that As the numbers declined and became stable, the line sort of flattens out. And that's the difference between the two trajectories that you see. Next slide. Is that unique to the UK? Well, let's compare the South African line. And you can see again in the black, there's this little line that looks like a sort of uh, a knuckle where it goes up sharply and then takes a turn and then it flattens out. If you look at that line and you compare it to a range of different countries, and I've chosen here to compare it against the U.S., the U.K., Italy, China, it gives you some sense that every one of these countries, when they get into that upward incline where we see that exponential line, it simply keeps going. Not a single country that we have seen has this kind of turn. I've also compared our epidemic curve to some of the most successful countries, countries that have been able to make quite a marked impact on the growth of the epidemic. And those in particular, South Korea and Japan and Singapore. So when you compare our epidemic, you can see that Singapore was able to make an early impact and to create a much more steady growth in their epidemic. Whereas if you look at South Africa, there's been no other country. So our epidemic trajectory is unique. No other country has reached that point and has been able to reach a stage where you get that kind of plateau. So why is South Africa different? Why is it that our new cases declined and have reached a plateau? Well, there's three possible reasons. The first, is it that we're just testing less? Is it that we're just not doing enough tests? And that's why we're just seeing fewer cases. Is it that we actually are still doing a lot of tests, but we're doing them mainly in the private sector and not in the public sector? And so we're not getting a sense of what the epidemic is doing in our poorer communities that don't have medical aid. Or the third possible explanation is, is this reduction genuine? What's the likelihood that it's genuine and that it's due to the interventions that we have implemented? Next slide. So in this slide, I'm showing you on the left-hand side, this is a graph of the number of tests that are being done in the public and private sectors combined. What do you see in that? You see that over the two weeks in which we saw the South African epidemic go into a sort of plateau phase, what we see is a continual increase in the number of tests that are being undertaken. So it's certainly that we didn't do much fewer tests. In fact, the overall numbers of tests have steadily increased in the last two weeks. (coughs) So that eliminates that, it, it reduces the likelihood that it's just simply a problem of lack of testing. Lack of testing may be a contributor, but it's certainly not a dominant one. So are we not testing the poorer communities? Well, if we look on the right-hand side, that's the, the daily number of tests that are being done by the NHLS. The NHLS is the public part of the laboratory service. And so all of our poorer communities without medical aid will be coming to the NHLS for their testing. And what do you see? Just at the time that you saw the plateau in the South African trajectory, is the point at which the NHLS sharply increased the number of tests that it's doing. And we've seen that steady increase in the number of tests in the NHLS. So it's not because we're not testing in, in, the, in the townships and the communities. It, it simply it has to be a third explanation. So it's unlikely due to a lack of testing it's unli- or a decline in testing. It's unlikely to be due to the fact that we're not testing in the the communities, the poorer communities, so it's most likely to be due to some genuine effect. So let's look at that, and it's not something we can say definitively, but we can say that that's the likely situation. So our COVID-19 cases have declined over the two weeks, while the NHLS test numbers have increased, and while testing in people in communities without medical aid has increased. We still need to do more in terms of testing, but certainly what we have seen is an increase.
0: Professor Karim said, although South Africa has managed to buy time, it would not be able to escape the worst of the pandemic. But one of the advantages it does have above the rest of the world is an army of active community workers. So what's next?
3: What we would hope for, that the number of new cases will steadily decline disappear, and that's the end of the story. I'm sorry to tell you that that's very unlikely. The more likely scenario is on the top right-hand corner, and that is that what we've managed to do is to stem community transmission. But once we end the lockdown, and we're going to have to end it at some point, once we end it, because about 55 million people odd are vulnerable to this virus, Remember, this is a completely new virus. No one in the world has encountered this virus before. This is a completely new virus. We have no immunity. We have no vaccine. We have no treatment. We have no immunity. So that means we're all at risk. doesn't matter whether you're white, black, young, old. It doesn't matter. You're at risk because you have no protective immunity. And that's why as soon as the opportunity arises for this virus to spread, we are likely to see the exponential curve again. We looked at, and people have looked at other epidemics. So colleagues in India have modeled the Indian epidemic, and they are also currently in a 21-day lockdown. And basically what they show is that the epidemic is starting to go up, you institute a lockdown, and basically at the end of the lockdown, the epidemic is likely to come back. Then you can look at Wuhan, where they instituted a very long uh, lockdown, right? Something like, what, 50, 60 days of lockdown. And they then waited for no local transmissions for seven days before they lifted the lockdown. Well, we, it's left to be seen. Are we going to see another small epidemic in Wuhan? As soon as travelers start coming into Wuhan, reintroducing the virus, to what extent is the community doesn't have immunity and we're likely to see new epidemics. We're going to watch that very carefully. Next slide. So I have to tell you that as much as we have succeeded in stemming the flow of this virus in our communities in keeping community transmission at a reasonably low level, and that is a success that no one else has achieved, I have to tell you a difficult truth. Can South Africa escape the worst of this epidemic? Is the exponential spread avoidable? The answer, sadly, is that that's very, very unlikely. Put simply, no. We cannot escape this epidemic. Not unless... South Africa has some special protective factor. Let's call it a mojo. We have some mojo that protects us that's not present anywhere else in the world. Our population is at high risk because all of us have no immunity against this virus. We've never encountered it before. So as soon as we end the lockdown, we will have that high risk. And so that's the issue we're grappling with. So why is it that it's so inevitable? Well, there are several reasons. One is that this virus, when you acquire the virus, let's say you get infected with a virus today, we expect that for the first three or so days in the incubation period, you will not transmit this virus. But thereafter, from day four, day five, Up to the first seven to ten days, you are now infectious. You are infectious before you have symptoms. So you don't even know you have this virus, and you are in a position to transmit it. How do you fight something that you don't even know you have? And that's been our one challenge. Once you show symptoms, you are also infectious. And so you are infectious for another two weeks or so. So you have this long period of infectiousness that in, in, during which we're then spreading it around. And we know that normally when people are interacting with each other, this virus can spread really fast. In that, on average, an infected person will infect about two to three other people. So what does that mean if I say two to three other people? Think about it like this. If 10,000 people have the virus today, within a matter of three, four, five days, that 10,000 people will uh, become a number like 30,000. And then again, another four or five days, and you're now at 90,000. Because each person is infecting two to three others, this epidemic within weeks can grow very rapidly. And we see that in that exponential curve. So what we have seen is a slight difference in our curve. And the government interventions have slowed the viral spread. The curve has been impacted, and we have now gained time. So why is the delay important? Why is it that we should delay this viral epidemic? Why don't we just get it and be done with it? Because if we allow it to grow unchecked, we will see what you see in New York. You will see thousands of people trying to get into a hospital for care, and we simply do not have enough ICU beds or ventilators or medical care or any of that. We simply cannot care. We cannot provide care to so many people at one time. And so that's the challenge we're going to face. So we have time to flatten the curve. And South Africa has a unique component to its response. And it's quite important that when you talk about how do you tackle this virus, every other country has simply had to wait They saw these cases coming into the hospital, and that's how they recognized they had an epidemic. In South Africa, we've chosen to go a different route. We've chosen to be proactive. We've chosen to go out there and do active case finding. We're not going to wait till they come to the hospital sick. We're going to go into the community. We're going to find them before they get to a hospital. And only South Africa has done that because every other country, before they knew it, the epidemic was on top of them. Because we've had time, we now have, as you heard from the Minister of Health, we have over 28,000 community health care workers going house to house in our most vulnerable communities, screening them and referring them for testing so that we can find the new cases.
0: And let's close this episode with today's Darwin Award for the day's dumbest press conference question and Professor Karim's suitable response.
1: Closed-off minister, there is a question um, that has been asked to say, is the minister a medical doctor?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I can provide confirmatory proof <laughs> that Dr. William Kizy is a genuine doctor because He was in medical school the same time that I was. And he and uh, his wife, Dr. May Mashayko Mkizi, were in the class ahead of me. And he was uh, the president of the SRC when I was uh, in the SRC as a young medical student. So I can can vouch that he did qualify in medicine, and I can vouch that he did qualify in student politics.
0: This has been episode 17 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.